Hi there, my name is Thomas Copeland and I'm the head of news at Queen's Radio. What you're about to hear is an interview and a Q&A session called a Lit Talk that I hosted for the QUB Debating Society, the Literific. The event was with President of Sinn Féin, Mary Lou MacDonald. I started off by asking Mary Lou about her personal life. I know that sometimes politicians, the last thing they actually want to talk about is themselves. So um, unfortunately, I, I might force you to do that. Um, you, and it has been said plenty of times, you were born in uh, 1969 in Dublin. Uh, before we get to university days, before we get to joining Sinn Féin, why politics? That's a nice wide open question. Was it a family passion or was it something that you kind of stumbled upon um, when you were growing up? I think it's probably uh, a mixture of both. Thomas, and can I just say how delighted I am to be with all of you this Friday evening? And I wish that it was uh, in person, but look, as the old saying goes, uh, we're at where we're at. Um, yeah, I, I, I guess it was a mixture of the two. I was never the kind of person who had, for, for me personally, kind of, you know, a master plan, you know, for world domination or my life kind of neatly arranged in, in different boxes. You know, I was never... I was never, I suppose, that organized, if I'm, if I'm truthful with you, but I certainly grew up in a household where uh, politics was discussed. Um, so if, if that makes it a political household, then it certainly was, and not just domestic politics, but international politics too. But I'm the first person from my, from my family who ever ran for public office. So I don't come from, you know, some kind of dynasty or a family where it was kind of an accepted thing that you would you know, go into political activism and, and go forward for election. I, I'm a pioneer in my family in, in that regard. But yeah, I always had an interest in things, an interest in people as well. And ultimately, I, I think anyone who's in political life for any length of time will tell you that whereas the kind of the, the high politics, the diplomacy, the legislative processes, the public policy piece, is fascinating and challenging and really enjoyable, really to stay the course in politics and to be to make this your life. You have to you have to care about people because that's ultimately what it is. And dealing with people in all sorts of different circumstances, and including dealing with people who have diametrically opposing views to those of of, of yourself. But that's yeah. yeah I can answer it as much by just life happens and, and I, I've always been the kind of person that follows things that I'm interested in, that I feel passionate about and, and so here I am today. And, and growing up in Dublin, you will have been watching the conflict that was taking place uh, sort of where, where I am at the moment in Belfast. Uh, as a child in Dublin, not just you, I suppose more broadly at school, did it seem like it was, you know, something that was happening at the other end of the country, in another country, some people would say? What was the perspective like growing up in Dublin, watching a conflict take place um, up towards the border and into, into Belfast and the north of Ireland as such? Well, you know, the strange thing, Thomas, even though I'm, I'm a Dubliner, so um, obviously we're at a remove from things and I didn't experience growing up in conflict and, and all that the hardship that that brought um, but nonetheless, for me and for my entire generation, the troubles were the background noise to all of our lives. And you couldn't avoid it because uh, day in, day out, evening in, evening out, there was news from the north. Um, most of it, you know, to be honest, absolutely heartbreaking and big, 
moments in history are, are marked out kind of in uh, in my mind, certainly, I, I and I've spoken about this before, I, I particularly recall the uh, H-blocks, the hunger strikes, Bobby Sands. I can recall exactly the moment when I heard that he had died. You know, I remember all of the big figures, Margaret Thatcher, uh, the lady in Paisley and that kind of looming, almost terrifying figure yeah. for me as a child uh, in Dublin. So in, in a sense, it felt, of course, a little bit distant because we weren't in the middle of it. But um, but nonetheless, it was part and parcel of every single person's life who lived on this island. That That's that's the truth of it. And, and in the way that so many Irish families in the past um, have have fallen into politics. You first joined uh, Fianna Fáil. Um, that was your first political party home. Um, wh- why did you do that, I suppose, is the first question. Why Fianna Fáil? And then you obviously uh, left after that. What, what were the main motivations? And do you remember a specific moment when you thought to yourself, do you know what? Actually, this party isn't for me. I'm going to have to take the leap to Sinn Féin. Well, Fianna Fáil, my family by tradition were anti-treaty and therefore Fianna Fáil. As you'll know, Thomas, that Southern politics, you know, for a long time, for, you know, generations has been split. The kind of cleavage in Irish politics, pro-treaty, anti-treaty, Fine Gael, Fianna Fáil. And uh, my people were certainly very much on the, the anti-treaty side of the equation. So, I suppose, uh, again, when I got interested in politics, and by the way, I should say I had and still have very many friends within Fianna Fáil, um, and I joined for a short while. And you know what? It became, if not immediately obvious, very, very quickly obvious. I was just in the wrong place. I mean, (laughs) it's it's as simple as that. My my political... um, orientation has always been about Irish unity, about democracy in Ireland, about self-determination and all of that piece, but also social justice. Um, And the the perfect political home for me, as I discovered, was in Sinn Féin because it marries both of those things and and the whole drive now, which I'm I'm happy to say is is much more... um, I, I suppose, but much more advanced now than than fifteen or twenty years ago yeah. when I joined the party. Um, that marries up that politics perfectly. So, by the what, way, where I grew up, there was no Sinn Féin. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like Sinn Féin wasn't organised. I look to our party now, and it's it's a large, it's the biggest party on the island, and we get to talk. I'm sure about all of that. But I mean, that was not the case when certainly when I was your age, Thomas. That that yeah. that. Just was there wasn't a Sinn Féin, and now we're in we're in every county. We've representation right yeah. across the island. Well, like, well, that, that links that links very nicely to my next question, which is the significance jumping forward in time to your election as leader of the party in two thousand and eighteen. Uh, you know, in in preparing for tonight and 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 looking through some questions to ask you, you really cannot go far. It should be said without reading almost the same thing, which is that Mary Lou Macdonald is middle-class background, a nice part of Dublin, privately educated, studied English literature. Um, And then you're elected to be leader of the party, of a party which has always defined itself in many ways by uh, working class roots. And 
was and is still regarded by by some, and I'll quote a New York Times article in a feature about you, so I'm sure you know this quote, regarded by many as, quote, the IRA in suits. Um, your election as leader, Sinn Féin, do you think that that represented a move away from some of the history of the party? Was that a decision to say, I want to put some of the history of Sinn Féin behind us and look forward? Well, look, I, I think it's fair to say that um, I, I, I probably, for some people, represent a very unlikely leader of yeah. Sinn Féin for good reasons. And, and not least, and let me say this, uh, the fact that I'm a woman. I mean, it, it's only a recent phenomenon uh, in Irish uh, in in Irish politics that, that women leaders have again come to the fore. You see that I have a, a portrait of Countess Markievicz on, on the wall behind me. And of course, she was the first uh, woman elected to Westminster. She was an abstentionist, but she was a Sinn Féin MP. So Irish history has always had very strong women, but but we've, you know, they got lost, they got forgotten. And, you know, so ju just to say that point, also to say to you, Thomas, like all of the political parties in, in the South, if I can call this jurisdiction, 26 counties, had at some stage a relationship with the IRA and with armed struggle and with the, the advance of, of freedom. And sometimes when I hear this, you know, this uh, refrain around the connection between Sinn Féin and the IRA and so on, as though it were a brand new departure. It's not. It's very much par for the course. It was the case with Fianna Fáil. It was the case uh, with Fine Gael. But, as but it would be fair to say, wouldn't it, that that relationship is more recent with Sinn Féin than some of the other parties and perhaps closer? Uh, not closer, but certainly more recent. Um, and the reason for that, Thomas, is because... Uh, unlike the other parties, Sinn Féin is a national organisation and so organised in the north, in the six counties where, where the conflict happened. And, um, you know, when partition happened, uh, the Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael kind of retreated back as, a, as purely a 20, 26 county entities. It, for Sinn Féin, that's not the case. In fact, we grew and developed in the north of the island, as you know, initially. Yeah. And then the South, those of it had to play a bit of catch-up organisationally and uh, politically. But I, I'm making a wider point. Whatever about the timing uh, involved, uh, the truth is that there has been that relationship historically because of our history and mm -hmm. uh, because of the circumstances in Ireland. But but to to move things on, if you're asking me, did does the election of a new leader in this case yeah. myself? represent movement on of course it does i mean my god you'd be in a very sad and sorry place if you remain stuck in the 1970s or the 1960s of course Sinn Féin has changed and by the way will change always generationally as circumstances as politics changes but the only thing that remains absolutely constant is our core objective and the core objective sure. is sure. as old as wolf tone and uh, it is um, about and we'll come back. We will time. definitely be coming back to those core principles and also the significance of, of your leadership as opposed to, to previous leaderships. Let's talk about elections, if you don't mind. Uh, the last few years have been a game of two halves. Don't worry, I am getting to the general election this year in a moment. But if, if, if you know, as painful as it might be, I want to go back a little bit further. 
you had to weather a few tough elections. Um, EU election 2019 lost two seats, local elections north and south. South, you lost nearly half of the seats. Then UK general election, vote share fell despite you know a high profile win in North Belfast. If you can take yourself back to um, you know at Christmas 2019, early 2020, it feel as a leader to have led a party over some really difficult elections, even on a personal level, Mary Lou, does it feel like a, did you feel ever so slightly like you had failed in some regard? How on earth as a person do does a leader overcome the really difficult two-year period that you had? When, when, when you get through it, because you have to get through it, and of course those are very tough times, and whatever about being tough for me, I, I can tell you that they were tougher for for people who, who lost seats and for an organization uh, that was left, you know, very, very sore because those were very difficult elections, uh, particularly in the South. I mean, I take your point about the Northern elections, but I, I don't think what happened in the Southern elections was mirrored at all north uh, of, of, of the border. So yeah, that was tough, but in some respects, it's kind of character forming or character building because the truth about being the leader is you're the leader in the good days and the bad days. And the truth is when when the success happens, it's shared. And and when, when failure occurs and when you run into problems, it, it lands directly at your door. And, and by the way, that's exactly as it should be. And that's exactly as it as it has did to you be. Ever question your own, did you ever question your own leadership coming through some of those elections, Mary Lou? Did you ever think, for whatever reason, I, I'm not the woman for the job? No, I, I, I didn't think that, but I certainly, um, I, it sharpened my sense of, of just how how tough and challenging a, a job it is to lead a large national organization. And also that transition and change is hard, you know, because uh, for any new leader coming in, you have one thing, you have the excitement and the newness of the new leader. Uh, but you also have change and, and you know, uh, not just your own activists and your own party, but the public generally. It takes time to kind of adjust and to readjust to yeah. the fact and to get to know a person, not simply as a public figure, because I would have had that profile, I, I, I think, at that stage. But it's different when you're the leader. It's like probably playing in a, in a rock band and it's just different when you're the lead singer. And, 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 and Mary Lou, when a major party goes through a, a, a defeat of the scale that, that, that you even referenced, it was called a disaster in the South. What happens in a major party? Every major party goes through it. What happens? Are people fired? Is there a big constitutional reflection process? What happens the next day? The next, it, it very much, Thomas, depends on the party. And in, in some organizations, I guess maybe people get fired. But in our case, <laughs> Uh, what what it sparked was um, obviously people were sore, people were hurt, people were shocked because we didn't see it coming. But what it sparked was a really honest internal conversation and a period of reflection. And I had uh, as sore as people were um, and the party was hurt. I always knew that we would rally again, that we'd we'd dust ourselves down and get back at it. Uh, and I knew that because um, people in Sinn Féin, activists at every level all across Ireland, know that we have we've a, we've a big project, we've big big ambitions uh, for Ireland. 
But I also knew that we had to learn. Like, it's one thing to make mistakes, to earn. What, what were to... the mistakes? Sorry, Mary Lou, if you don't mind asking. I mean, I, I'm sure a document was written of some kinds. You know, what were the big mistakes? What went wrong? And in a second, don't worry, I will mention the Irish general election this year. I mean, what were the headlines that... I, I'm, by the way, Thomas, I'm, I'm quite comfortable discussing the, these elections because um, I have found that you often learn more, more and most and the most valuable things, not when you've had a great day out, but when you've had a really hard, a really hard day out. So the big lesson, I think, is that we had come through a decade of austerity in the South. We had, you know, the party had been growing and, and people knew who Sinn Féin was when the chips were down and your back was to the wall. We're the people who go in there, who stand up for you, who fight your corner. And and then the, the economic circumstances changed, the political climate changed. And I just don't think we were clear enough in our own minds and certainly in our communications in those changed circumstances, what Sinn Féin really was all about for individuals, for families and for communities across the state. So um, we learned well, that. That was the reflection that, that took place. Then certainly the results yeah. of the general election this year uh, reflected that. Sinn Féin received a, a lot of support from young people. I'm sure some of the people watching this will have voted in that general election for your party. 32% uh, of people, uh, young people aged 18 to 24 voted for your party in 2020 compared to just 16% in 2016. How significant, Mary Lou, is your leadership uh, to that change? You talked a lot about housing and austerity. Those things clearly resonated with young people in particular. But was your leadership something that was instrumental to that? If you don't mind me, I'll, I'll quote you again. Um, was your leadership representing a move away from, quote, uh, beards and black leather jackets? You, you'll know where I've got that from, to quote yourself. Was that part of the success of the party in this election? Well, well definitely there's no beards now in this uh, in this group. And if there is, I'd be worried. Um, and, uh, and the black leather jackets, of course. I mean, the, the change in Sinn Féin and the change in leadership is generational. It's, you know, and of course that marks out... Um, a new approach, um, building on the past and, and, and so on. What I found going around uh, during the last election was that, um, and, and if I'm honest about it, we were, some of this took us a little bit by surprise, the extent to which people had landed on a position, and particularly younger people, that it had been Fine Gael, Fianna Fáil, Fianna Fáil, Fine Gael for a century, almost a century, and that now was the moment, is the moment for a new type of government, a government that's more in touch, uh, a government that will do things differently, take a different uh, sort of policy perspective, but a government that feels differently as well. And people were very clear in articulating the type of change that they want. So a lot of it, Thomas, you're right, was around that whole debate around housing and accommodation and rental and tenants rights all of that um but it was wider than that there's there's been an appetite as you will know and, and you've seen it in marriage equality and the repeal of the eighth amendment that there's a new perspective in irish politics and i think this isn't just in the south i think it's island wide um and in Sinn fein uh, and in myself but not just me the team around me who are really top-notch uh, people saw 
an alternative government. So it wasn't it wasn't a protest vote. Mm-hmm. People voted for us very much to be part of and ideally to lead a government. Didn't well, happen last yeah. time. You, you mentioned island-wide, uh, Mary Lou. Unfortunately, politics never stops. Um, a recent poll, I'll quote you here, Lucid Talk, revealed that six in ten people believe that the performance of your Vice President, Deputy First Minister Michelle O'Neill has been bad or awful this year. Uh, in that same poll, you had a minus 39 leadership rating score, down from plus 17 in June. Uh, Arlene Foster sits on minus two, Michelle O'Neill minus 39. Why is your vice president, the deputy first minister of Northern Ireland, uh, the the least popular political leader by a long way? Well, I have every confidence, uh, Thomas, that polling will happen, which will have Michelle as the most popular and most effective in time. These things go in in cycles. Uh, That's the only way I can explain that. What I can tell you is that Michelle works incredibly hard, um, that she is, uh, above all else, a problem solver. I think some people, you know, you need to work with Michelle to actually gauge the extent to which and the lengths that she will go to to find consensus and to to bring people along and to be constructive. And you saw that in the Brexit initiatives that were taken kind of along that axis. Yeah, Mary, I, I, don't th- I don't think anybody is, is questioning Michelle O'Neill's work ethic as such. But, I, I mean, by any metric, moving from plus 17 in any opinion poll to minus 39 from June to October is a significant reduction in the faith that, that, that people have in your leader. I wonder... Uh, why that is uh, because I, I'm looking from June to October and I'll give you another stat from that same poll and you'll say I'm sure the same thing about polling and I'm sure this would come up at some stage the same poll revealed that 47% of people believe that the Bobby Story funeral will have a bad or somewhat bad impact on your party and between June and October that was a significant event event do you have any regrets as to your your own conduct or the conduct of Michelle O'Neill well, ju- just to say on the polling, because we just had a conversation around not polls, but elections that went well and went badly. Um, and I, I would just make the point to you that these these matters can be cyclical and you're not stuck ever for good or bad in one, you know, stationary position. The nature of politics is that it moves and it responds. And you asked me about um, about Bobby's funeral and you will know that... Uh, both I and indeed Michelle have acknowledged, and I acknowledge again, that the number of people out on the streets for, for the funeral caused obvious uh, concern. Um, and of course, I regret that. I deeply regret that the last thing, I'm not in the business of upsetting people or of causing angst uh, to people. And I, I regret also, if, if I can say, the fact that Bobby's family have had to listen now on and off over a number of months to a controversy around a figure, you know, a public figure, but nonetheless, their, you know, their loved one. And I think that's really difficult. There has been no experience more difficult in COVID than bereavement and burial. Um, and I'm I'm very, very sorry for the story family that that happened. With respect, Mary Lou, and I, I want to move on in just a second, is the reason in part that there is so much consternation about that event, it, it's in many ways, it's nothing to do with 
uh, Bobby Story's family or indeed the fact that it was a funeral, is it not the case that it was a high profile event of any kind and senior figures within Sinn Féin were seen to be and perceived to be not obeying their own rules? In many ways, it was completely irrelevant that it was a funeral and the tragedy undoubtedly that was being felt by Bobby Story's family. Well, you might say that, but but I, I would I would remind you that it was a funeral, um, and uh, and in in the course of of this whole COVID emergency, very hard things have been asked of people, and I, I think the most difficult has been around funerals and burials, and I mean, I, I absolutely recognise that uh, people who did not have the kind of acknowledgement that they would have wished to have for their for their loved one saw large crowds uh, on the streets in Belfast and felt hurt by that. And I, for that, I, I deeply, deeply uh, mm -hmm. regret that. I, I recognise also that the families and uh, the family and those who who organised the funeral did make efforts to to keep numbers mm -hmm. down and. On. Um, I, I want to move on to COVID in, in just one second, Mary Lou. I just wonder whether there's an ever so slight political spin between saying that you regret the consequences of that event and actually apologising for being there. No, well, I, I mean, I apologise for the consequence. So I'm not trying to be, but, I'm not trying to be <laughs> promise. And uh, if you wish to kind of unpick my language please please feel free to do so i'm not playing a game with this yeah this are, is, you, are you are you sorry that you attended well it was a funeral and i i'm 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 not i was asked i was invited by the family i i did one of the readings at the mass i was more than more than happy to do that do i regret doing that no i do not absolutely so not. you don't you don't regret going but you do regret the consequences of going um, I, I regret the fact that the, the funeral was a, a, a bigger affair um, than some may have um, may have wished. And I regret above all that it caused, not, not for political pundits or for the purposes of, you know, playing a game, a, a, a political game of tennis, but for people who looked up and who were upset by that, of course I regret that. Yeah. We've got loads. We've got loads of questions coming in, Mary Lou, and and I want to get to them. Um, you you had COVID nineteen in March of this year as a bit of a, a you know a public service announcement, if nothing else, <laughs> to encourage people as to the importance of sticking to the regulations. Would you be able to give us very quickly a, an idea of of your experience of COVID? Uh, yes, uh, it is a terrible virus. It's it's not a flu. Certainly, in my experience, and I'm saying this by the way, mindful, Thomas, that. Some people will have coronavirus and they are completely asymptomatic. Other people get were much sicker than me and ended up in hospital and in ICU. Yeah. In my case, um, I was very sick for a number of weeks, but I, I managed to fight the virus off and to recover at home. Um, but it is, I, I think it's uh, for me the first time that I was ever really sick you know luckily touch wood i mean i've had flus i've had different but but i had never really been sick so it, it uh it was a very very unpleasant experience and i would just say particularly to people who might and i've heard this line of argument from some that this is a hoax or you know it's it's made up or it's just a flu it's it's not just a flu it is a novel virus for which as we know there is as of yet no vaccine 
Uh, it is a dangerous virus. It can take people's lives. Well, and in, the in the context of that danger, um, not too many observers, it would be fair to say, were impressed with Stormont this week. Um, do you think that should the people of Northern Ireland, young people watching this, have a single ounce of faith in the parties that govern us, govern us in, in, in this part of the world after watching, um, I, I'll use the word chaos at Stormont this week? I, I think for, for everyone, and maybe most importantly for young people watching this, it, it's important to understand what actually happened. Because what you have described as chaos is actually a scenario in which the chief medical officer gave advice. That advice was brought to the executive by the Minister for Health, Robin Swan. There was a vote taken on that advice. There was a majority in favour of that advice of a two-week extension. The DUP voted against. Uh, they did not want that course of action. But then they went on to cross community vote. Uh, mm -hmm. matter. I, I understand so, that, and it's it's a point that needs to be made, Mary Lou. Is there's sometimes a frustration that I feel um, for people um, who watch what happens at Stormont and say, um, why is it that the two parties will constantly? Uh, uh, pointed each other rather than being grown-up politics, which is just working it out between themselves. You and uh, the DUP are in an executive together. You are supposed to be, uh, you know, bound by collective responsibility. And yet, any time something difficult comes along, the finger point. You are part of governing this jurisdiction. There was chaos this week and surely there's some responsibility to be had by all the parties in Northern Ireland for that. Is that not the case? I'm not getting into a blame game, um, but I am setting out the facts. Um, but it is, you're not getting into a blame game, but it is the DUP's fault. No, and I, I'm, I'm saying to you what, no, the DUP took a particular view, they didn't want a two-week extension and they community voted that. The other thing I'd say to you, Thomas, and I, I, I think people need to really grasp this. This is a five-party executive. This is not a coalition between the DUP and Sinn Féin. This is a five-party power-sharing exe executive. And by definition, an arrangement like that is tricky and difficult because you have people yep. from widely different political perspectives and um, pursuing different uh, objectives very often. Um, and yes, and it is the right thing, by the way, that we have this wide uh, power sharing executive. That's it, it is a necessary feature in the northern political and the Irish political uh, landscape. Um, but as to finger pointing and blame and blame, blame gets us nowhere. I accept yeah. that. Yeah, of course. Yeah. I, I, I take that point, Mary Lou. You, yeah, you mentioned this a five party executive. There are only two parties within that executive that can. Uh, veto each other in the executive, and that is the you, you and the DUP. You've mentioned the DUP vetoing uh, the proposals that were put forward. Now, at the final deal that was struck, uh, restrictions continuing for one week, then close contact services and unlicensed premises after that. Your party voted against that deal. Why didn't you veto that deal? Because the very idea of cross-community voting, uh, a matter of, of public health, is is insane, quite frankly. It's certainly not the purpose for which that, that veto uh, exists. It's a misuse of that. It, it brings that into disrepute. 
Um, because but, but, but now, if this situation is as serious, and we know it is as serious, as serious as you're setting it out to be, surely uh, you would, I mean, surely it is the case that the veto was there and you could have used it. And you have described this situation as life or death. It's extremely serious. You said that we need to listen to the science. The veto could have been used by you to block the arrangement that was eventually put forward and you decided not to go down that road. I'm not and sure, you know, I'm not sure how that how that squares up. Well, well, it does square up and, and had had we done that, you and I would be having a very different conversation and you, Thomas, would be saying to me, why had, you, why had we sectarianized an issue that clearly is a public health and a universal concern? Furthermore, I'm not sure that that would have resolved anything. It would have simply lengthened uh, our difficulties. Our position is very, very clear on this. The numbers in the north ha have come down, but they are still very high. Mm -hmm. um, the hospital capacity is at 100% and slightly over capacity. That's executive has now landed on a position. It's not one that we are uh, terribly happy with, but it is the collective position. And what Sinn Féin members of the executive will now do with our colleagues in a spirit of cooperation and progressivity uh, is to do our very best to ensure uh, that we get the get yeah. and keep the situation under control. And can I say, Thomas, well, in two weeks' time, there will be, uh, you know, there's going to be further assessments. I mean, the CMO and the scientific people are watching this scenario uh the whole time and this isn't you know the end of the story in terms of well, what we do let me ask one more question on that then mary lou and then we'll go to our first audience question you've mentioned the advice from the cmo which was for a further two-week lockdown that advice yeah. was given uh, towards the end of last week uh, and yet on uh, sunday politics last sunday michelle o'neill uh, detailed her her hopes and expectations of relaxing restrictions including close contact services being open from today, from Friday today. What changed early this week? The, the medical advice. I mean, I, I have a hope and aspiration of people returning to their normal lives and being, being in, in a position well, well, to well, go. With respect, Mary Lou, the, the medical advice for a further two-week lockdown was given by the CMO at the end of, of last week. I think it was either Thursday or Friday. And yet on, on Sunday, your, uh, the Deputy First Minister was detailing how she was hoping that close uh, services could open again from today. Hence my confusion. Well, let me unconfuse you, Thomas, because yeah. you're going to hear a lot of um, people debating around what might be done, what could be done, what would be desirable to be done, what they'd like to have happen. And that's going to be that's part and parcel of this conversation, not just island wide, but internationally. Uh, and we all say that, and, and Michelle has always caveated and bookended, bookended any commentary that you have to be consistent and compliant with medical advice because you and I and all of us can have whatever views we want. I'm not the chief medical officer and neither are you. And when the expertise walks into the room, as the CMO did in recent days at the executive table and said, any of those things that you are proposing will cause excess deaths. When you are given okay. I would suggest to you that you perk up your ears, you reassess your situation, you listen to that advice, and more, more crucially, you follow that advice. And that's what Michelle okay. 
and I yeah, did, yeah. and they were what, okay. Well, well, well let, let's move on to some audience questions, um, uh, Mary Lou. Uh, the first comes from uh, Shane McGuinness. Um, oh, we're into the world of Brexit. We've avoided it up till now. Um, uh, he, uh, Shane McGuinness asks, if the Northern Ireland Protocol in the withdrawal agreement is implemented by Westminster, do you think that the island of Ireland is a step closer to economic unity? And if so, what active steps are Sinn Féin, Féin taking in order to achieve economic unity? So that's from Shane. Okay, well, hello, Shane. Um, the, the, the purpose of the protocol is to protect the All-Ireland economy um, and to ensure that we can keep the lights on on the, uh, on the island. Uh, even with the protocol, Shane, Brexit is bad news. Um, and Brexit will be will be destabilising um, economically um, for the island of Ireland, for Britain itself, in my view, um, and and for the continent as a whole. So there's no there's no magic wand that can be produced to make that go away. We are in a, a difficult uh, place. Um, it it does mean that. Uh, for the purposes of, of the North, that it will stay within the single market for different purposes, but within a, a shared or a different customs union. So it's kind of a messy, it's an inelegant, it's an inelegant uh, mechanism. It, mu it might be inelegant, Mary Lou. I suppose part of Shane's question, though, is, is it optimal in some ways, or is it, are you using that, uh, and I don't mean that in a pejorative way, to, to move closer to economic unity and a united Ireland? Well, I, I think, um, and I don't take that as a pejorative, I mean, my, my station position, my, my work every day, Thomas, is about reunification and it's about democracy in Ireland. So, so yes, of course, we're working for those things. But uh, I, I, I would have to say that in the first instance, the protocol is a mechanism just to stabilise, you know, and to protect the island as a whole in what are very, very difficult um, circumstances. Yeah. Does this advance the issue of economic unity, Shane has asked? Well, you, you might you might well reflect on the fact that Brexit has ignited the, the debate around reunification generally, not just economically, but uh, across the whole range uh, of issues. And I think undoubtedly, um, People who may not have particularly cared or may not have had a very strong view on the issue of the partition of the island now are in a situation where they're asking themselves and asking other people uh, questions. But the economic dynamic on the island, bear in mind 20 years ago and more, uh, business in Ireland, you know, the CBI in the north, IBEC in, in the south and small business across the island have in many ways been ahead of the curve. They have always seen the benefit of an all-Ireland approach and, and economies of scale well, of that nature. So. Perhaps, Mary Lou, but they, they, uh, yet um, they might have, uh, as you say, uh, put forward the strengths of that. What uh, uh, That leads us quite nicely into another question on the topic of Brexit. Sinn Féin hasn't that any changes to the border between uh, Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland would breach the Good Friday Agreement, suggesting that this rules out the option entirely. Is, is Mary Lou also fighting to ensure that there is no change to infrastructure across the Irish Sea, considering that a border within the UK would equally breach the consent principle? Question there. 
Yeah, and and these matters of borders uh, have been have been um, debated up and down. I mean, the primary concern for me is no hardening of the border on the island uh, of Ireland. And people who are old enough to remember will remember the time when border crossings were closed. People will also reflect on the fact that one of, I suppose, one of the big symbolic uh, moments and symbolic evidence of the strength of the peace process uh, was when those border roads were opened. And the fact it, that it's worth saying, though, Mary Lou, is it not that, that many of the reasons that the border was was shut weren't down to customs checks? They were police checkpoints. Yes, that's correct. Yeah. And army. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, so it's not entirely, is it slightly disingenuous to say that um, uh, that it would be economic concerns that would that would bring you back to the situation that you've described where there were army posts across the Irish border? There's a distinction there to be made, isn't there? Um, well, of course there is. I mean, there's there's no um, armed uh checkpoints on there on the island or should, should there or will there ever be uh, again? Uh, but I, I'm making a, a slightly different point, Thomas. I'm saying that the progress of peace was manifest when the border roads were opened and the fact that people now move seamlessly north to south. Um, and the reality is that people live their lives across the two jurisdictions um, and we need to protect that. I mean, a, a lot of the the foundation for the success of the peace process was not least because Ireland and Britain were both members of the European community and then the European Union. So that facilitated, you know, the four freedoms and a lot of, of that movement uh, across the two islands and across the island itself. And there is a real concern that there would be a hardening of the border and that in turn would disrupt matters, cause difficulties for business, for agriculture, um, and for people going about their let, let me ask about business, if you don't mind, Mary Lou. This, um, I think earlier this week, uh, Michelle O'Neill and Arlene Foster sent a joint letter to the EU Commission asking that um, uh, they would look into ways in which uh, the Northern Ireland Protocol could be interpreted in such a way that businesses could still export the goods that they need to from the UK into Northern Ireland. Um, yeah. I, wonder, I wonder what I mean, it's, some people were commenting that that was an interesting thing um, for uh, Sinn Féin to be asking, because on one hand, they're saying that they want to see no infrastructure on the border uh, between uh, uh, the North, Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland, but then also going to the EU and saying, well, hold on, we don't want to have the rules here between Northern Ireland and the rest of the UK that are required under EU law as well. Um, is, that, is, there, is there a hypocrisy in there at all, Mary? Uh, no, there isn't, Thomas. And bear in mind, you might have added to the list of things we didn't want. We didn't want Brexit, <laughs> just to say that. Yeah. But hey, here we are. Um, the the issue at hand was the, the you know there was a lot of talk about food chain and food supplies and supermarkets, and there was a real concern that there would not be disruption to those supply chains. That was the, at the core of the concern. Um, and just so as we're clear. Um, there was a concern that some 55,000 jobs might be jeopardised or undermined if, if difficulties uh, were to emerge in the supply chain. So the, the, the protocol has to be delivered. It's, it's, um, that is a matter that has been agreed and concluded. 
Um, and I think uh, what, what is in question now is not moving from or de permanent derogations, but certainly a grace period to make sure that we don't walk into some kind of shock situation um, in respect of food supply. Okay. So I think it was a lot. And indeed, a very, you use the term hypocrisy, I would use the term pragmatism and caring for the fact that Brexit is bad news, bad news all around. And I don't want to see one single person, I could avoid anybody losing their job or their livelihood as a result of it. We'll do, okay. we'll do uh, what we need to do yeah. to secure people's wealth. Absolutely. Uh, let me ask a question, Mary Lou, from, uh, from Emma has been sent in as well. Uh, on, a, on a similar theme, uh, she asks, Sinn Féin has always been a Eurosceptic party. You were opposed to EU membership in 1973, opposed to Maastricht Treaty, Treaty of Nice, Lisbon Treaty, every EU expansion in between. Mary Lou, she says, has even debated with Nigel Farage against EU expansion. Is Sinn Féin still Eurosceptic or did the fact that the DUP supported Brexit change all of that? That's, I think that's a valid question. Well, of course, all of the questions, Thomas, are valid. Oh, of oh yes, are. certainly. Um, so no, we're, we're not. Actually, Euroscepticism is a particularly English phenomenon. Uh, elsewhere in the continent and across the European Union, uh, the term that's used is Eurocritical, not Eurosceptic. We're not, you know, little Irelanders. We're not small, insular thinkers. Our, our issue with the European project is, is not around whether or not we are European. We clearly are. I mean, Ireland is a, a, an ancient European nation. We are very much European, but the issue at, at question well, is... Why then, right? Mary Lou, sorry, were you opposed to EU membership in the first place? I, I was oh, going you. on to tell you. Well, I wasn't. I was, yeah. I was a bit at that time. But uh, the issue is the direction of the European project itself. Uh, and that is a matter of contention. And we would be critical of the fact that the project lost sight of kind of the essential social element, a social Europe, I suppose, uh, as against a, a Europe that's very much designed in, in which the, the markets are, you know, all dominating, where competition policy is the, is the, the centerpiece and the, the central dynamic and where the interests of, of, of corporates and elites are served and where so many people got left behind. And by the way, Thomas, it's interesting to reflect on Brexit Britain and to look to um, different parts of, of, on the island of Britain and task. why did communities, strong working class communities come out and vote for Brexit? And some people put it down to just, well, it was kind of chauvinism or even racism. And, and, and there, there's no doubt there was ugly politics at play. But you also have to be honest and say that for many of those workers and those communities, they felt not unreasonably that they had been completely forgotten and left behind. And they didn't feel the benefits of social solidarity and progress that the European project ought to have provided to them, but failed uh, to do so. So we, that doesn't we, make we, you, by the way, yeah. Thomas, that analysis does not make you a Eurosceptic or a bad European. I think it makes you the best kind of European, a European who actually believes in European citizens and their rights and who's prepared to stand up Mary Lou, and, and would, would you then be would it be fair to say that your party or you are, are opposed to to further eu expansion things like tax harmonization uh, it, it would would that be something that you wouldn't be comfortable with absolutely not um because for societies to work um in the best interests uh, of their people 
we have to be sure that core democratic functions like the, the raising of taxes and core decisions around the expending of public monies are taken within the member state uh, in question. I, it, I, I think it's, just, it's just Mary Lou that what you've just said there resonates and, and has ever so slight echoes in it of the kind of the Brexiteer arguments of reclaiming sovereignty and you know, laws need to be made in Westminster and not in Brussels. Would it be fair to say that there is an overlap of significant size when it comes to your thinking on the European Union between you and your party and the Brexiteer project? No, absolutely not. I mean, the Brexiteer project is about Tories coming in, playing on people's fears and getting a free hand so that they can run down environmental standards, run down workers' rights. I mean, the, the Tory Brexit project was never about the liberation of working people or about progress in terms of, you know, these core generational issues. I, I remember at the time when, uh, you know, there was a, a huge kerfuffle by the Tories uh, in Britain around uh, something as subversive and obnoxious to their minds as the Working Time Directive. You know, an instrument simply to make sure that working people uh, work decent hours and, and that their health and their safety is protected was considered to be some, you know, atrocious affront to civilised and democratic uh, life. So that's how the Tories are. And to anybody who thought that Really, this was about, you know, really about um, any higher ideal. I, I would say to you, watch that space and you'll see in time what plans uh, Tory Britain have, has in terms of further privatisation, okay. ravaging of... Because yeah. you're living with the circumstances of some of the consequences of some of that in the North already, so, Thomas. So okay, I, I okay. Um, let Let's move away from Brexit, if you don't mind. Um, we have got a few people in the chat who are able to to ask their own questions. We try to keep it small as to uh, not to disrupt our technology any further. Uh, Jasmine, I wonder if Jasmine is there. Uh, and if you are, you could switch on your camera and unmute yourself for me um, because we have a couple of questions uh, in a similar theme. Another similar one comes from Mark and uh, a further similar one comes from Cormac. Uh, Jasmine, wh why don't you ask your question to Mary Lou, please? Thank you so much. Hi, um, lovely to have you here. Um, so this is just kind of in relation, uh, we kind of can't have this discussion without talking about the prospect of United Ireland. Um, so Brexit has uh, made discussions surrounding United Ireland more prevalent, obviously. Uh, despite this, in my view, these discussions are quite reductive, limited, and usually discussed in the binary in terms of community affiliation. Um, I feel that this isn't realistic nor viable uh, given the current circumstances, um, particularly the increase of people defining themselves as non-affiliated or other, largely those like myself who come from the unionist community, but don't um, kind of associate themselves with that now and are more strongly considering the benefits of a united Ireland as a result of brexit and other uh, kind of issues um in this context should there be a united Ireland in the future where do you see the place of unionists and non-affiliated um being particularly in terms of political influence and decision making thanks a million jasmine do you want me to answer directly thomas oh uh, yeah yeah certainly answer directly that's fantastic Thanks so much. It was very nice to meet you, Jasmine, and thank you so much for your question. Um, and and can I say that I actually agree with you. I think, think there is a danger that this debate becomes 
not just binary and and reductive, but that um, that if we're not intelligent and thoughtful about how we frame it, that it could become polarizing. Um, in fact, it will become polarizing unless we give it a, a good deal of thought and make it plain. And let me make it plain from my perspective and our perspective in Sinn Féin. This uh, project for reunification needs to move away from the kind of thought or, or a sense of like doom or threat or jeopardy and move into the space of opportunity and excitement. You see, for, for me, my analysis is this, Jasmine. When, when the island was partitioned now, almost 100 years ago, what we got were, were two essentially conservative reactionary states. And the history books were written about the North, the, you know, a Protestant state for a Protestant people, and everything that happened in, in really an apartheid uh, situation in, in the North. But in the South, if we're honest about it, you know, there was equally a reactionary impulse and home rule, you know, did become Rome rule. Um, and long story short, everybody lost. Everybody has lost out because of, of, of partition. And I, I think, therefore, when we frame our conversations with each other around reunification, we have to have our eye on the prize. And the prize is a new Ireland. I'm not arguing for, you know, a united Ireland that has six counties bolted onto the 26 and we continue on business as usual. I want all of us, and particularly your generation, Jasmine, to grasp this opportunity to ask the questions, everything from the practical day-to-day -day issues around public service provision. What does our economic model look like? What's our enterprise model look like? What does a world-class educational system look like uh, across the island of Ireland? And how do we capture the incredible diversity, the incredible brilliance across our people, right across the island? That's really what this is, uh, is about. We have the mechanism agreed in the Good Friday Agreement for a referendum. Um, and it, it runs like any referendum. It is 50% plus one. That gets you the, the results. The, it get, gets matters over the line. But, but truthfully, we need to have a conversation that involves everyone. And I mean, even people who will say, I don't want to United Ireland. It's not my first preference. That's fine. I, I hear that. People will advocate for the union. That's fine as well. I hear that too. But all of us have to look at what are our options here? And in the event of Irish unity for unionism or for a young person like yourself, Jasmine, that comes from a unionist background, so I wouldn't presume to know your, your current political views, but whatever they are, you need to have the space where you articulate that, not me. I wouldn't presume to speak on your Mary, behalf. Mary Lou, can I, can I jump in there as well? And thank you very much, Jasmine. You mentioned their uh, Good Friday Agreement. All you need is, is 51%. In some ways, Mary Lou, is that part of the problem? C can you commit to not holding a border poll until you've had the kind of detailed and specific plans that you that you say that you want and you're moving towards where you negotiate with unionist stakeholders? Or is the policy that you are pursuing, and some people might say a more effective policy, to keep it all as vague as possible until you're sure of 51% and then just call a border poll and deal with the consequences afterwards? Because you don't need to have these discussions. All you need is 51%. Well, you need 50% plus one, which is a slight yeah, not sorry. Yeah, sorry. Yeah, uh-huh. Well, 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 no, I mean, you you need, you see, we all live here, Thomas. 
So this isn't about, hooray, we won, boo-hoo, you lost. That's not, what good is that? We all live here. And I care passionately that everybody gets a fair opportunity in this country. That matters. That matters a lot. I also have said, and I mean, I'm on the record repeatedly in saying this to the current Taoiseach, the previous Taoiseach, and to others, and indeed to the British government, the planning for constitutional change has to start now. Like, there is no prize for people burying their head in the sand, pretending the change isn't underway. It is. And in fact, I, I was very interested to see Peter Robinson recently actually calling out, you know, border poll deniers and saying, come on, you know, people, that's just not real. So preparation uh, uh, is, absolutely, is absolutely key. And these conversations, Thomas, that people yeah. will have around all of these issues, all of that is great stuff because the astonishing thing is once people know each other, talk about things that they care about, whether it's civil rights, human rights, democratic rights, you know, what a free and fair society looks like. I will tell you without fear of contradiction that people will discover that they have way more in common than actually well, divides. Let, let me address that, Mary Lou, if that's okay. I've a question from uh, Ruri. Uh, you talk a lot about a new Ireland, Mary Lou. If that happens, the new state will be far more British than the current republic. Will this new state, for example, be in the Commonwealth, uh, officially mark the Queen's birthday, Remembrance Day and 12th of July. Uh, let me add, if you don't mind, a, a bit of context here. So um, I read again the Sinn Féin policy document towards the United Ireland. It talks about some of these things. Um, for context, it says, um, in relation to a new Ireland, this could involve new symbols and emblems. It could involve expression being given to relationships between unionists and the British monarchy. I wonder, Mary Lou, what your thoughts are do you, as the main proponent of a United Ireland, really need to get the ball rolling by setting out concrete proposals, something like a draft constitution, uh, up addressing those issues and then working from there, rather than what I hear quite a lot, which is general calls for the discussion to happen? But if that's not a general call, that's a really specific call. There's a specific ask for a citizen's assembly. There's a, spe a specific ask to clear space for those conversations to be had. So you've asked me about the Commonwealth, you've asked me about the 12th of July, you've asked me um, about relationships with, with the Queen. I mean, I'm an Irish Republican. Those aren't things that I am going to seek. But but I absolutely respect that there are others who will seek those matters. And I'm, I'm making the most fundamental point that you have to have a place where that conversation uh, happens. And by the way, uh, in my experience, of talking to people from the the PUL community, you know, as like people from a unionist background, um, the question I have been asked more more than flags and symbols and emblems, as important and sensitive as those matters are, has been around healthcare. Yeah. It's it's been around the NHS and the possibility of an Irish uh, NHS. So uh, I I repeat the point that. Um, and I would not be so arrogant. It, it's not for me to make the asks of unionist citizens for unionist citizens. That would be clearly farcical. And I understand that, Mary Lou. But is it not? Is it not? I mean, is it not ever so slightly disingenuous? And I don't, with respect, you've been in politics a long, a long time at the at the top level of politics. You know your Irish history well. You're certainly aware of many of the things that unionists value. 
It doesn't take a genius to work out what some of them are. Is it not up to you to make the first move and say, right, here's my proposal in a New Ireland. We will, I don't know, put up the, the Union flag above Leinster House on the Queen's birthday. We will officially mark Remembrance Day or 12th of July. Is it not up to you to lay down a draft constitution and then you will get unionists coming ready to engage in that discussion? Well, just to say to you, so we don't have arguments, you know, or, um, and I, I'm certain I'm many things. I'm not a disingenuous person, uh, Thomas. The the Remembrance Sunday is is already marked uh, in in the 26 counties, as you're probably uh, well aware. And of course, I'm aware of the importance, for example, of the monarchy to some, to, to many, I imagine, uh, unionist uh, citizens. In fact, I've I've met uh, Prince Charles. He was kind enough to write to me when I was sick, actually. Um, so I, I of really? course, I understand it. Yes. What? Sorry, it's completely off. Was it a long letter, a short letter? I, I haven't seen that reported anywhere. Yeah, well, no, he did. He, he wrote to me to wish me well and to say how sorry I, he, he was that I, that I wasn't feeling well and that he looked forward to seeing me. And so it was very nice. I thought very gracious. Okay. So I mean, anyway, that's kind of deviation from the point that I make. Yes. So of course I get that. But I want to come back to this again. I believe, you see, I believe in agency, in a person's agency. And I believe that people who are British are more than capable, well able to bring forward their view, their asks, their ideas, their initiatives uh, in, in an all-Ireland context. And I want to reassure them, all of you who, who may be listening to this, that you will find in me and you will find in Sinn Féin a willing ear, a listening ear and, and, and people who, who are uh, who want to have that conversation to have that conversation. Yeah. Mary Lee, you, meant, you mentioned uh, healthcare there. A slightly related question comes from, uh, is it Feedhelm uh, Doolin, who I think is in the chat or uh, who, is, who is on the call? Um, a question to do with, I suppose, Sinn Féin and its ability to uh, initiate a health service of some kind. Um, Feedhelm, are you there at all? I am here, but that wasn't actually my question. Oh, okay. Well, well why don't you ask your question and we'll, and we'll work from there. Hi, I'm with Phelan, uh, Doolan. Uh, my question was in relation to the election of Joe Biden. So with the election of Joe Biden as President of the United States, um, do you think that we will see a substantial change in US foreign, po foreign policy to see stronger support for a United Ireland from the United States of America? And secondly, um, what do you think is more likely to happen within the next five years? A Sinn Féin government in the 26 counties or a United Ireland? <laughs> That's a very good question. You yeah. thought about that one, Phelan. I did, um, long and hard. So, uh, first thing, um, the election of Joe Biden, yes, I think it's significant. I think it's significant that even in the course of the election campaign, he said very, very plainly and clearly that uh, like Speaker Nancy Pelosi, like Chairman uh, Richie Neal, Chairman of the Ways and Means Committee on the Hill, that he too uh, has said very clearly that if there is damage to Ireland, to the Good Friday Agreement or and any of its parts, well, then there won't be a trade agreement with the United States. And I think that's a very powerful statement. I imagine that it concentrated mines across the water in London, um, and I think it's I, I think it is extremely important that we have that solidarity with, with uh, the United States on this matter, bearing in mind that the United States is a guarantor 
of the Good Friday Agreement. They have skin in the game, as they say. So uh, they've taken a very, a very, very uh, strong stance. I should also say we have a very special relationship with the states because there are so many Irish people that, you know, when there's a new president elected and then they sketch out how many came from Ireland and you were either Gaelic or Ulster Scots or whatever. It's incredible. I mean, it, we have an incredible, you know, international uh, footprint. We should remind ourselves of, of those um, achievements. In terms of like Sinn Féin in government or a, or a, a United Ireland, either, either, or, I, I don't have a crystal ball failing, but what I do know is that um, next time out at the next election, we'll ask people again. Um, to give us the chance and the opportunity to lead the next government. I hope we will succeed in that, but I'm not one bit arrogant. You heard me talk with Thomas about hard elections and good elections, and I, I'm very clear that you earn your corn and you earn your spot and you earn your votes uh, above all. Can, can, I, can I piggyback ever so slightly, Mary Lou, on the back of that last question um, on a related note? Do you think that the next election will be in five years' time, or will it be before that? That is to say, do you think that this government will make its way through a five-year term? I don't know is the honest answer. You're probably looking from 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 the north and you can see that it's uh, it, it's quite a government. I mean, it's uh, oh, it's sometimes you wake up and you say, I wonder what the what the dilemma will be today. It's uh, it's had a very, very rocky passage. Ironically, for a government that allegedly was, you know, formed for stability and sure-footedness, it's been anything but stable or sure-footed. So the truth is that it that it, it may not go uh, the 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 full course, um, uh, and I'm not going to place a bet on it. Um, it might, but I'll it might on. not. It's a real politician's answer now, Thomas. So. Um, let me ask another question, um, uh, Mary Lou, coming from Olivia. Um, uh, perhaps a more difficult one, not sure. Uh, she asked, why did Sinn Féin accept a donation from William Hampton, um, uh, an Englishman, for €4 million Euros by registering the donation in Northern Ireland rather than the Republic of Ireland? Um, let me see. If I can add an ever so slight bit of context, as I understand it, the Republic of Ireland maximum do political donation is €2,500. In Northern Ireland, it's, it's much less than that. So Sinn Féin can receive close to the full four million in Northern Ireland. Um, and as I also understand it, William Hampton's will specifically directed that it was for the party in the Republic of Ireland known as Sinn Féin. Um, is it, are you exploiting the benefits of partition, Mary Lou, whilst also um, standing up and claiming to be an anti-partitionist? Well, no, I mean, there is, there is, uh, I, I, for those that are bothered by the fact that there are two, two administrations, two sets of everything on the island, I say, well, you know, let, let's have one. So, uh, no, not at all. But as a matter of fact, there are two jurisdictions on the island. That's not a legal loophole. That's a fact. Um, William Hamilton left the money to Sinn Féin. He was a United Irelander. He was also somebody who kicked back against the British uh, establishment. He left us this bequeathment, a very substantial amount of money. Uh, we're registered in both jurisdictions, in the South and in the North. In the South, we couldn't accept the, the donation because it would be to break the law, and we're certainly not going to do that. Uh, but we could accept it in the North, and that's what we did, and that's fully in accordance with um, the wishes 
of of the gentleman who left the money to us and it's been it's been quite something to observe the the reaction by others which i can only describe as a very serious dose of sour from our um our uh, opponents who have jumped up and down but the the facts are that no law no rule has been broken and in fact a complaint but, but, was but, but, I, I definitely take that point, Mary Lou, and I am not alleging in any way, shape or form that you have broken the law. Um, I would ask simply, the, uh, the, the gentleman's will stated that it was for the party in the Republic of Ireland known as Sinn Féin. Uh, that's worth saying. Um, does that bear any consequence, uh, relevance on the fact that you decided to register the money in Northern Ireland, one? And two, is it against the spirit of the law, Mary Lou, if not the letter? Absolutely not. I mean, we're registered in two jurisdictions, uh, but we are a, a single party. Uh, the money is in the north. The money will be spent in the north. Um, we're scrutinised on the double, if you like, because we are a national organisation. So, so no. I mean, uh, just so so people on this at this meeting know the reason why this this matter got such uh, attention over the last week or so. Uh, even though um, the, the money was left and all of these matters were concluded more than a year ago, uh, is because the, the government here in Dublin came under under pressure and they think that, you know, in reaching for this issue that they can they can do some damage to us. But no, he, the man left us the money. He left it because he believes in Irish unity. We're very thankful and very grateful to him. And every rule and every law has been fully mm -hmm. respected. And, and, and let, me, let me nicely take us into a link into a new question, if you don't mind, Mary Lou, by finishing up by saying that um, this matter was discussed in the Senate um, earlier on this week. And we have a question from um, we have a question from Sean Kelleher. Is that right? Who is in in this chat at the moment on a somewhat uh, related note? Uh, Sean, do you want to put your question to Mary Lou? Yes. Uh, hello, uh, Deputy MacDonald. Um, so my question relates to Shannon reform. As you know, Shannon is currently debating reform. The Shannon in 1970, uh, the, 26, the, the people in 26 counties voted over 90% to to allow the graduates of not uh, not graduates of colleges that are not within the uh, NUI or uh, Trinity to cast a vote in Shannon. And yeah. um, there, there's currently proposals to expand up to every university. My question is, first, is would you like to see um, graduates of uh, Queens, Ulster, and the um, and and the the the, the, the and the other uh, third level education facilities in the north to be included in such reforms, and in the grander scheme of things, we'd like to see a return to the old Senate, where there was 60 members elected for 12-year terms, um, with a quarter of the with a quarter of the, the um, a quarter of the Senate elected every three years. Comprehensive question, Mary Lou. Very much, Sean. So let me just address the 12-year term first of all. I wouldn't favour that, and I, I'm not convinced that it would meet with public approval. Even the idea of a 12-year term, I think, would, would uh, alarm uh, people, particularly for a second chamber whose 
democratic standing is regularly regularly queried you know that there was a proposal to abolish directly elected sorry about that these would be directly elected by the people uh by the way as the old senate was okay um all right so not just the the, the term time but reverting to direct elections look there was a, as you know sean um this is a long-running issue in Irish political life. The Shannon to reform or to abolish. There was a proposal to abolish it. The, the people, the electors rejected that. Uh, I think they people like the idea of a second chamber for oversight, for inclusion, for all of those things. So we have to now. We have to work on uh, that uh, basis to answer your question around the university uh, panels. Yes. Uh, I believe that uh, all of the, if you include some of the university, I have to confess, I'm a Trinity graduate, so I have a vote in, in these matters and um, others don't. So that needs to be remedied. But we need to look then also around more more broadly around the issue of suffrage and um, who gets to vote. And there is a, an issue that needs to be teased out around how do you, if you aim for universal suffrage, so you have a directly elected chamber. And um, how do you prevent that cutting across the lower house, the doll? You know, what does that look like? Um, and that's quite a complicated uh, and convoluted conversation, but a necessary one. We campaigned at the time for the abolition of the Shannon, um, but we, we didn't win that argument. So we have a second chamber and where we can agree, Sean, whatever it looks like is, there is absolutely no doubt that it, it, it needs to be reformed. Can I also make this point, Thomas, as we're talking about the yeah, Shannon? Okay. A very good fellow by the name of Ian Marshall, um, a northern man, you'll have known him. He's a former president of the Ulster Farmers Union and so on, um, ran in a by-election for the last Shannon in the last all, and he, he we supported him, like so did lots of others, and he was elected. And I'm really disappointed that he wasn't appointed, reappointed this time around. There's going to be a couple of by-elections in the Shannon, and I really hope that space is given to a voice like Ian's. Ian is a unionist, so he's his politics is very different from mine, but I have to tell you, he was a very, very effective voice, and I think it's very important that we have Northern voices. We have Nilo Dunala, a Belfast man, you may or may not know him, um, he's from the Short Strand, and he leads the Sinn Féin Shannon group for, for us. It's really important that the Northern voice is heard in the Oireachtas generally and in the Shannon as we're discussing uh -huh. it in particular. And, and I suppose a, a very quick thing to mention, uh, Mary Lou, and I really don't want to dwell on it, is that you did have another senator from this part of the world in the form of Alicia McCallion. Um, do you have, uh, well, you have already expressed, and I think it's just worth saying again, do you have uh, regrets about the way that the money that came from the Northern Ireland executive uh, to uh, Ms. McCallion was dealt with? Uh, yes, I mean, I've, I have made that clear. The, the yeah. money, of course, wasn't sought. It, it landed into um, three different accounts and it should have been returned immediately. Um, and uh, I, I think my, my, my views on that are very clear. By the way, uh, all of the other, I think there's about 400 accounts which similarly have been credited with this money in error. And that money should go back as well. These are public monies. And Alicia McCallion is a very, very fine person. And um, she accepted that she had, uh, 
had uh, hugely acted in, in error herself here, that the money should have gone back uh, immediately. And she took the honourable course and a difficult course of action, but, okay. but the honourable course nonetheless. Okay, uh, let me ask another question, uh, Mary Lou, from because I can see we're uh, at half seven and I, I want to get let everyone finish and go, well, not go out on a Friday night, safely stay in COVID secure uh, at 8 p.m. Uh, let me ask a question from Peter Moore. He asks, the relationship between, um, um, uh, I think, uh, Ian Paisley, maybe is what he means, and Martin McGuinness, uh, no, sorry, excuse me, the relationship between Jerry Adams and Martin McGuinness felt a lot closer than the relationship now between Mary Lou and Michelle O'Neill, he says. Is that a fair interpretation of the dynamic? He asks. Uh, media reports say that Dublin Sinn Féin told the Northern Operation to scrap their plans for reopening hospitality without alcohol. Um, a, 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 an interesting question there from Peter. Uh, well, it is interesting. It's interesting on two fronts. Firstly, um, I mean, Martin and Jerry, of course, were very, very close. Um, and myself and Michelle are, are very close. I mean, we're we're colleagues, we're friends. Um, so we've we've a very good and a very strong relationship. And by the way, neither of us take direction from others. It's gas. I, I heard this thing that Michelle was directed by Dublin. I, I'm assuming by Dublin is meant me, you know, what to do. Nothing of the store source. I mean, we work together. I have enormous respect for Michelle and for my colleagues in the well, North. You, you are party. the party leader, Mary Lee. You, you call the shots at the end of the day. So if you want to go a certain direction and Mary and uh, Michelle doesn't, you know, it's your vote that counts. But I, I, I'll tell you a better one. Well, no, well, I mean, that's not, you see, when you, when you lead a large organization, the, the approach of my way or the highway is never the wisest approach, Thomas. Just t a tip for the top if you ever find yourself in in that position but of course i'm in i'm, I'm in charge I, I, absolutely but equally i mean at uh, the same people who have gone on and on and on about william hampton's money and trying to make a big controversy around that would have you believe that i'm directed by belfast so i mean it's it's just nonsense and i have to say this i wonder sometimes is it because we happen to be women in political leadership and i'm not doing the poor me routine there's no poor me about it. I, I'm a very, I, I'm a very able and a very seasoned operator. So I'm not saying that in in a way of 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 any form of of sort of self pity. But I just wonder, is it for some people when they see women in leadership positions or a woman like me leading a large organisation, is there somewhere in their brain that they think, well, a woman couldn't possibly do that? And if that is the case, I I have to enlighten those people that in fact I am the leader and I, I don't take direction from anyone. And Michelle O'Neill knows her own mind and, and does her okay. job well, similarly uh, uh, under the direction of anyone I, I'm, else. I'm, I'm, sh I'm sure, and I'm so sure as well, you know, uh, critics would, would certainly su not suggest in any way that they are sexist, um, but uh, it's an interesting point you raised. Let me ask Mary Lou about another type of relationship which is between the uh, First Minister and Deputy First Minister in Northern Ireland. Uh, in, uh, famously, uh, uh, Ian Paisley and Martin McGuinness were, were, became close. They were known as the Chuckle Brothers. Then we had a period of time when um, uh, Mary, uh, uh, Michelle O'Neill and Arlene Foster were quite close. I remember Marlene becoming a moniker for a certain period of time. Has that relationship become more strained over the last number of years? And how important is that relationship to effective governance and progress? 
I, I think it's very, I, I think it's very important. I mean, all of the relationships on, on the executive matter, you know, um, collective responsibility and collective relationships and dynamics really, really matter. Um, but for those two people, uh, Michelle and Arlene in, in the first minister's and deputy first minister's office, of course, that that matters. And it's also fair to say that it's a challenging relationship by definition. I mean, Arlene Foster is the leader of the DUP. They are a union party. They have a particular view of the world. Uh, Michelle is an Irish Republican, uh, mm -hmm. the deputy leader of Sinn Féin. So, of course, there's going to be natural tensions. But I, I do want to say this. I mean, I've, I've given you my view of the last week or so and the use of the community veto, which was disgraceful. Um, but there have been times in the management of this crisis where the executive has done really well and and Arlene and Michelle have done really well in, in very, very difficult circumstances. And I think it's important to register that as well. And by extension, can I say members more generally of the executive and it's in political life and public life, it's always necessary to kind of criticise and to identify uh, failures or shortcomings or chaos like we saw last week with the with with this business I, I, around the I, I, I just merely some observers might suggest that the relationship that existed between Ian Paisley and Martin McGuinness was a, a close one and that seemed to be a period of time in which enormous progress was made and some of those same observers have not seen the same level of um, uh, the same strength of relationship between subsequent First ministers and deputy first ministers, um, is do you think that you know the strength of that relationship is what dictates progress in this part of the world? Um, no, I, I don't think it's the entirety of it. I mean, no, um, no political system and pr progress in any political system can't revolve around just two people. But I do accept that um, everyone on the executive and the. the the first ministers in particular have a particular role in kind of setting the tone and the feel. And I think can certainly lead from the front of, of that. There is uh, no doubt. Just remember, Thomas, that uh, when uh, Ian Paisley and Martin McGuinness went into those offices, I remember it very clear. I actually remember being in the, the Great Hall and them walking down with Bertie Hernan and Tony Blair. And at that time, people people would have said, you know, first of all, people would have thought that you were absolutely crazy if you had suggested that these two men, you know, could work together, much less that they would actually form a friendship, uh, quite a deep friendship between each other. But it did happen. But it took time. All of these things take time. Yeah. And no two sets of relationships, by the way, look or feel the same because people are people and people are different. And and th that relationship in the in the first minister's office between Arlene and Michelle, of course, is is important. Mm -hmm. But it is also important that everyone on the executive collectively lifts the load, and that the relationships generally in the collect in okay. in the executive uh, are healthy and strong. Let me ask, Marilu, I've got two uh, similar questions here. So if you don't mind, I'll, I'll read both of them out. The first is from Alex Griff uh, Griffiths. He asks, uh, does Mary Lou think that the shared island unit, so that's set up by the governments in Dublin, uh, the shared island unit is a genuine attempt to move towards Irish unity? And what would Sinn Féin 
uh, do differently if it were in governments? And, and let me add to that a similar question from John Joe McGrady. Uh, with public opinion, he says, pushing towards the idea of a united Ireland. Uh, the South, he quotes, with over 70% in favour and some polls having a majority or close to majority in Northern Ireland. And the fact that Antishuk and Michal Martin said it wasn't on his government's plans What's the response to that and how do we move forward? Um, I suppose the overriding question there is, what is your opinion on how the government in the currently in place in Dublin is performing in relation to your ambition and the general ambition of a united Ireland? So let me give you an answer in two parts, because the positive is that this shared island unit has been established. So that's a good thing. And I actually met with the Taoiseach and we discussed um, discussed the unit. I actually had a meeting today also with Ireland's Future. They're meeting with political parties across the board. Um, and I know they've been talking to the Taoiseach about the shared I island unit. And on, on the plus side, the, the Taoiseach and the government are talking about conversations. They're talking about engagement. Great stuff. You'll never do too much of that. But the big deficit and the big negative to answer Alex and uh, John Joe is that there is not an explicit mechanism now for planning, for concrete planning for the future. And I have told the Taoiseach that is a big mistake. I think it's a huge mistake. At this point, I would go so far as to say that for the, the head of government in Dublin not to be planning for the next number of years and for orderly constitutional change and transformation is actually reckless. Um, so what would we do differently, John Joe, I think was your kind of uh, approach. If I were the Taoiseach, I would be having a conversation with you now, not just about dialogue and engagement, all of that good stuff. Of course, that needs to happen. But I would be saying to you, we now, we now wish to commence the planning, the active planning for all of the changes that are, are going to be required. Um, uh, let, let me ask you, Mary Lee, I suppose people, uh, critics of, of what you've just said, would say that um, we're in the middle of a pandemic. Inevitably, there will be an economic recession, the likes of which um, uh, very few people have seen in their lifetimes. So that, that so, uh, and the argument would go that so now is almost certainly not the time to be engaging in a major constitutional reform. And I add to that perhaps the fact that the the folks that you would need to convince in in Northern Ireland, in the North of Ireland, the pandemic has shown them the power and strength of both the NHS and the depth of the UK Treasury's pockets is now, in actual fact, not the worst possible time to be engaging in major constitutional reform. That is, will, would almost by definition be, uh, to some extent, instable and, uh, and you know, difficult and tricky and hard to accomplish. Well, no, I, I, I don't accept that at all. In fact, I think what the COVID crisis has demonstrated again and perhaps in an in a even more dramatic way than Brexit, is the real jeopardy of the border on the island of Ireland. I mean, the facts are that for the purposes of public health, we are a single epidemiological unit. Uh, we're not acting or behaving like that, and that's a problem. Uh, and that, that is, it leaves us vulnerable because the truth is to keep any of us safe, we have to keep all of us safe. We can't have 
a reservoir of this virus and disease anywhere on the island. But with, actually, with respect, Mary Lou, I mean, acting as one epidemiological unit doesn't require unification. I mean, there are lots of jurisdictions around the world that, sh that share an island and they don't necessarily have to be unified. Yeah, and I, I'm not making that point, but I have told you that the jeopardy that is introduced when you do have a border and partition and two separate uh, approaches to separate standards, no joint up thinking when it comes to even things like uh, tracing and, and so on. So I make that point. I, I would also say this to you, um, a, a crisis like uh, Corona exposes lots of things uh, across a society. So it's, it's, it's hammered home, for example, the value and the need for shelter for people. Um, as a matter of right, not least because um, we now know that your home is not alone your castle, but your home is your place where you isolate, where you keep yourself safe and, and so on. It, it's shone a light on the health system at north and south in, in both jurisdictions. And I think it has demonstrated in, in some respects in, in a very cruel and a very stark way, the work that we have to do because all is not well on our island. And so we have challenges north and south, and we ask, how do you best address them? Um, and you don't get the luxury, Thomas, of saying, well, uh, now is not the time. We're, we're just going to hold back because, uh, you know, it, it's too challenging to do the things that we need to do. I, I absolutely don't accept that. I think this... Well, in fairness, I don't think I was suggesting that it was a luxury. The point I was making is some people would say that it's much more secure and that with all the instability in the world right now, the, the last thing that some people would want to do is engage in major constitutional reform. I think that's the point I was making. And, and I, I think I've answered that point by saying to yeah. you that the, the source of instability on the island in Brexit and in COVID terms has been very dramatically demonstrated to be around the issue of partition. What more destabilizing event than Britain voting to exit uh, the European Union has our had our island faced in oh. generations until Thomas, until mm -hmm. COVID came along. And in yeah, both okay. instances, I'm um, pointing uh, you to the reality that the border causes us a huge, huge and ongoing problem in, in, in that regard. But the bigger point is far from being destabilizing, the reunification agenda okay. opens up an opportunity for us to fix the things that are broken all across Ireland. Okay, uh, uh, we're, we're running out of time and you've been very good and you've given up a lot of your time and I want to get in as many questions as I can uh, before we finish up at eight. Olkin McSparren, I think, is in the uh, is in the chat, so we will actually be able to see him. Olkin, if you unmute yourself and switch on your camera, um, you can ask your question to Mary Lou Olkin. Hey, um, hi, Mary, pleasure to chat to you. Um, so I'm a chairperson of QUB Social Democratic and Labour Party. One consistent theme we've heard tonight has been the um, idea of a united Ireland. And my question is, do you think that the provisional IRA's campaign helped or hindered the prospect of united Ireland? Hi, Elkin, I like your name. It's a oh, very unusual, you. very northern name. Thank you very much for, for the question. I, I think the, the campaign, as you call it, was a direct and predictable result of political conditions on the ground in the North at that time. 
Uh, I think also if, if you place um, what happened over those decades in the wider sweep uh, of Irish history, um, you see that it has been an ebb and flow um, with tragic uh, consequences for people on our island um, over the, the decades in terms of, of securing uh, Irish freedom. Um, and I, I would say to you that um, for our for your generation, you're younger than I, but for, for all of us now, uh, looking back, I think we can readily identify the level of suffering that people went through. Uh, people will have different views as to uh, the IRA and the other combatant groups. All can you know what I mean? You could you know the British Army, loyalism, the whole lot. We're not going to have a shared narrative on that. I don't believe. I don't think we're ever going to land on a position where there will be one agreed account of what happened and, more importantly, why it happened. Mm -hmm. um, and again, that's that's not that's not a unique phenomenon either. I mean, in the part of Ireland that I live in, here in Dublin and all across the twenty six counties, the 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 version of events and the views of who was right or who was wrong or should it happen or did it help. And was Dev right or was Collins right? And what would have happened next? Those debates will rage for generations. What What, what do generations. you think, though, Mary Lou? It, what, I mean, what's your opinion? Mm -hmm. I think that the I think that the conflict was inevitable. Mm -hmm. I think it is hugely regrettable that it was not resolved earlier. But I know that, uh, and this is the reality of conflict when it not just in Ireland but internationally, when a cycle of conflict emerges, it's very, very difficult to stop it. Um, and I think we were ultimately very successful um, through, for, and we owe debts of gratitude to lots of people for the fact that we finally could find a democratic and a peaceful uh, dispensation um, to, um, move, will, to move forward. Okay, Olkin, do you want to respond to that and then, and then yeah, we'll move on, Olkin? I think we're all in agreement. No one wants armed conflict on this island in any way whatsoever. Um, however, there would have been the possibility in 1973 with the Sunningdale Agreement to have brought about an end to the conflict a lot sooner. And overall, has the conflict, and that kind of overarching question, helped or hindered the prospect of a united Ireland? Um, what would your opinion be on that? Has it helped or hindered it? Thank you, Olkin. Well, well, as regards, I mean, that could have happened in 1973, Alcan, but it didn't. Like, I mean, that's that's just the, the reality of it. And I'm not sure what's to be gained by, you know, in, in we could go back as far as 1918 and say, well, the British government could have re respected the mandate of the people on the island of Ireland. They didn't. I mean, had they, none of it would have happened. Had the island not been partitioned, we would be having a different conversation um, uh, be between ourselves. Um, but the truth is that all can, people act out of the circumstances in which they find, find themselves. And I don't know what age you are, I'm not going to presume, but I know you're a lot, lot younger than me. You're a young man mm. and you're growing up in a particular set of circumstances. And you might look back to the early 70s or whatever, you know, as a historical person, say, what in the hell was going on? Who thought? How did that happen? And I would just say to you, as somebody who is older, maybe I don't know if I'm wiser, but I'm certainly older than you, that you, you, you have to understand that people act from their circumstances and you change, you change people's actions, you change history 
by actually understanding that and changing uh, circumstances on the ground. I think we can agree often. If if I wrote had the hand that wrote the, the, the history of Ireland, there wouldn't have been a fire a, a shot fired had I because there would have been no partition and no reason for it. But that's not how history played out. And people in real time live in their circumstances and make their decisions. And different people made uh, different decisions. And I would say the the predominant reason why the conflict went on so long was because uh, the British government was prepared to slug it out in Ireland. And in fact, in many respects, used uh, Ireland as a training ground for- Mary Lee, I mean, I, can, I can I just inject? It's, it's, it's an interesting, ever so slight uh, dichotomy in that you say, and I, uh, I, I believe you say with real sincerity, that if you had been in charge, it wouldn't have happened, or you know, a, wouldn't, a, a shot wouldn't have been fired, as you said. Is there- a, a question mark over the fact that you say that, but also in many cases you won't condemn actions in the past. I mean, you you won't condemn the the actions or the campaign uh, waged by the provisional IRA. Um, I mean, is that kind of have your having your cake and eating it at all that you can oh, say, no. well, it, you know, if it had been me, it wouldn't have been, but I I won't condemn actions that took place by by people in the name of the thing that I can I'm campaigning for. No, no, absolutely not. And uh, in fact, Thomas. My family's connections with the IRA go back to the 1920s. And back at that time, there were people who said that they were terrorists and and, and all the rest. And I will not have any of my people um, who were brave people and honourable people insulted in that way. Um, and, and my view is consistent um, across the generations. So when I say that if I had had my way, there wouldn't have been a shot fired. I said, if I wrote the Irish history book, but of course I didn't write the Irish history book, no more than you did or any of us. So we have to, I, I believe in these times, take um, quite a broad perspective in mm -hmm. terms of how we understand people and the choices that they made and the circumstances in which they, I, I don't believe that you can understand conflict or why there was a conflict uh, unless you take that perspective and then and then all can as to you know whether or not it aided uh, Irish unity I'm, I'm taking from your political persuasion you clearly take the view that it didn't and I mean I hear that from the SDLB uh, but but I would equally say to you that um, you have to ask a, a question around not just what happened but if it had not happened where where would we have been? And we could debate that all night. And it's very fascinating with somebody who's involved in politics in the here and now. It doesn't it doesn't actually get you wild far along the road. Okay, um, let let's try to move on to, to, to two other questions. Thank you, Olkin and Mary Lou. Before we finish up, one Thanks. comes from uh, Leah Boyle. Um, I, from a very specific perspective, uh, she asks, what are you offering to girls and women facing difficult and unplanned pregnancies other than advising them to, uh, I'll say, uh, have an abortion? Well, it, it, um, uh, what are you offering to girls and women facing difficult and unplanned pregnancies? Uh, the, the freedom to calmly and in a supported way take the decision that it is right for them. That's, that's what we're offering. This is about um, this is about women um, being uh, respected for an ability to make choices and judgments that are right for them. Very often, as you say, Leah, in very, very difficult um, circumstances. 
And I think we need to learn to respect adult women's ability to make decisions uh, for themselves. And for far too long, that has not been the case um, right across Ireland. And I'm very pleased that we've moved considerably ahead um, and we've made considerable progress uh, in recent years. But it's not... I suppose it is um, uh, offering, I'll not say offering, or, or saying that you know the option of uh, deciding to have an abortion is on the table. What is your party doing for people who decide that that is not the option that they want to take in difficult and unplanned situations? Well, I, and, and I think I made that clear that every option needs to be available to any woman in those um, circumstances. And what we do is uh, we work for um, and we um, hope to achieve in a more complete way a society in which a, a, a woman in, a, in expecting a child or the parent of any child isn't automatically consigned to poverty, isn't excluded from education or other services. It's about, it's about supporting people. It's about supporting people on low incomes, sometimes in insecure work. Um, and it's also about creating a societal atmosphere in which we respect the fact that there are many, many different types of family formations and that people who uh, parent alone are worthy of nothing other than our utmost respect um, and support. I can tell you, I have two children myself, Thomas, well, they're teenagers, they're young adults. Um, and I, I, I know that uh, it's a big thing to raise kids. My mother raised four of us on her own. She was an outstanding woman. And there has to be recognition and support for that. And that means lots of things from housing provision to income supports to work opportunities, opportunities to get ahead and to advance. All of that has to be on the table. Um, let me ask, uh, I think, just about a final question, um, Mary Lou, from Amy. She says, we hear a lot about populism these days, usually in the context of Trump and Brexit and far-right parties in Europe, and yet many authoritative experts list Sinn Féin as Ireland's foremost populist party. Is Sinn Féin, a simple question, is Sinn Féin a populist party? Uh, no, uh, not in that sense. We are certainly an increasingly popular party. Uh, we're not part of the political establishment. And you see, you need to be careful how, how you define things. I mean, this idea of populism and kind of playing to the lowest common denominator, I hear that kind of, and that's, I suppose, most regularly associated with um with uh, Donald Trump, but you can see examples of that elsewhere. I, I think it's dangerous, though, to say that every voice that challenges power or challenges the status quo or takes on uh, the tired and rather jaded political establishment and questions things, that that automatically defi defines you as a populist. Because there's something around using that term, that it's used almost tactically to disregard what you're saying uh, or to undermine the message of change. And, and that's what Sinn Féin uh, is all about. I, I, I suppose that the, the, the common thread there, which is perhaps why experts have listed Sinn Féin in that category, is that Trump, Brexit, some of those far-right parties do 
um, sort of pit the people uh, against what they call the elite or the establishment in, in politics and media or business. And I think it would be fair to say that, that Mary Lou, on occasion, that is very much the kind of rhetoric that Sinn Féin will employ, um, that the, the people sort of versus the elites or the establishment. Is, do you ever have a fear at all of being associated with that kind of, I'll say the word again, populism that has, in your mind, done great damage in other parts of the world? Well, I think the contrast between that type of populism that you've described, that kind of reactionary right-wing populism in Sinn Féin, is the difference as between daylight and darkness. So no, I have no such fear. Um, our, our politics is about equality. It's about inclusion. It's about fairness. It's about decency. It's about women having our rights. It's about human rights and, and civil rights. So we, we are a, a million miles, and actually, in an Irish context, some of those who would point the finger at us and say that we're populist are actually, you know, quite reactionary themselves. So no, I'm not going down that road. That's, 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 that doesn't bear up as, as a matter of fact. And yes, we speak truth to power. And the fact is that we live in a society that is still riven by inequality, we are, we are stupid, we are foolish to tolerate that because we know that more equal societies are more prosperous societies. And in order for us to get from unequal to equal, from divided to a united sense of, of prosperity, you have, to, you have to challenge the status quo. And that doesn't make you a populist. To my mind, it makes you a, an activist and a representative mm. who's willing to take things on in a spirit of honesty and progress on uh -huh. behalf of the people that um, you represent. Mary, we, we've two minutes to go. Uh, if it's okay, I want to swing back to, to a kind of personal reflection. Earlier on today, I was um, looking through your Twitter feed, knowing that I would be chatting to you later on in the day. Uh, in the world in which we live, uh, pop, uh, you know, politicians are now celebrities as well. Um, you are quite active in replying to sort of random people as such on, you know, with, with humorous remarks, that kind of stuff. How has, has your life changed by politics now being in the realm of entertainment as well? One would presume that when you walk down the street, people will recognize you. You probably uh, have more trouble wandering around the supermarket than you might have before. As a final question, to bring us back down to the personal reflections that we started with, how has your life changed in the last two years from becoming a leader of a president of Sinn Féin? Well, it's busier, that's for sure, <laughs> but I have no bother going around the supermarket, not at all. I mean, the neighbourhood that I live in, myself, my husband, my kids, you know, we're here. There's, there's no great novelty value in seeing me around this part of Dublin. We're very much part of the furniture. Um, and in my experience of meeting people right across the island and beyond is people are dead on, absolutely sound and lovely, including people who don't share your political view. At 9.9, .9, you know, out of 10 people <laughs> are just absolutely lovely and want to have a conversation. And by the way, um, actually appreciate the fact that uh, in addition to being a politician, you're a human being. I am an imperfect, flawed, normal, regular person. And when I'm not doing politics, like I'm a, I'm a mother, um, I like being, you know, I, I like my friends. I like a bit of crack. I like, you know, I like an open fire. I like the sunshine. Not that I got to see much of it this year, but uh, 
So no, I mean, I, I still have a very, very. But you, you, you mentioned life. friends there, Mary Lou. When, when in pre in pre COVID days, when you go out for a drink with some friends, I mean, are people not sort of in in a bar or a nice restaurant or something saying, "Oh, look, there's Mary Lou." Well, well, they can do. I, I have found that pubs, you know, can be, you know, when the hour gets late and when people are yes. in high school, that could get a bit, yeah, that could get a bit uh, messy. But it, it, again, mo most people, when you're out with, with your family or with your friends, most people will respect that. And of course, they want to say hello and have the crack. I like people, Thomas. I don't find that, um, I don't yeah, find yeah. that. And, and overall, I've, I find it very good. I have to say, when my kids were small, my children were smaller, it used to drive them nuts. They used to wonder, and maybe they thought everybody's mommy just talked to everybody that they met. You know, they thought this yeah. is what mommy did. So, but apart from that, no, I have a great life. I'm a very lucky person, and um, I I love my work, and I love the people that we represent, and and uh, I enjoy every every single minute of it. Well, on that note, Mary Lou, I want to thank you so much for giving up your time this evening. I've kept you one minute later than I said I would. A huge thank you to you for giving up your time and in, indeed uh, your team for, for working with us and facilitating tonight. You've been really generous with your time, very generous with your an your answers as well. So I'd like to, to thank you um, uh, from the entirety of the Literific. I'd like to thank everybody who asked questions, submitted questions. We had them feeding into me throughout and prior. Um, I'll say it again, I said at the very beginning, we do have more Lit Talks on the horizon. Uh, November 27th, Ian Blackford, leader of the SNP in Westminster, he'll be with us. December 4th, Julian Smith, former Conservative Party Secretary of State for Northern Ireland, he'll be with us. Uh, thank you to everyone that took part this evening. Um, uh, these events are for you, so I hope you enjoyed them and got what you wanted out of them. Um, so thank you very much, everyone, uh, and have a wonderful weekend, and we will see you soon. Thank you. Thanks very much for listening, and I'd like to thank The Literific at QUB for inviting me to host that event. We'll see you soon.